0: Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purify me, O God. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation that I might teach sinners your ways. Oh, Holy Father, we thank you for the blood of the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness that is available for all who will call upon him in faith. And thank you for the cleansing that those who have met you in salvation can continue to experience. Father, you told us that when we approach you, we are to come with clean hearts and clean hands. And we come this morning with a sense of expectancy that the word that we open will be used to renew our minds and to change our lives. Father, we know that we are in the midst of a godless generation where the vast majority of our people on this Lord's Day as Americans won't even be in a house of worship. We have spurned your ways. We have called evil good and good evil. And so may judgment begin with the household of faith. May you restore true saltiness to the true believers. And may our light shine in a way that men might see our good works and bring glory to you, our Father who's in heaven. Thank you that when you save us, you save us to conform us to the image of your Son, and that all things are working together for our good, even the most difficult circumstances of life that he might have first place in everything. So we humble ourselves before you with the psalmist. We tremble at your word. With Samuel, we say, speak, O Lord. Speak today. Speak to each and every heart. And may we be more than just listeners of the word, filing away another sermon. But may we be changed by it. Help me, Father, fill me and anoint me and use me, that all who hear this today and those who will hear this in weeks and maybe even years to come would be edified and challenged. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's word, with you, this morning, Revelation chapter 19. We are turning a corner in our third section here of the Revelation John, by the Spirit of God, gave us the divine outline. He said, write the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1. Write the things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3, as he records seven churches that in many ways represent the challenges and problems of God's people throughout time. And then write the things that will happen, metatata, after these things twice over in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says after these things. You can't miss it. God doesn't want you to miss it. It's the divine outline for the book of Revelation. So we're in the futuristic section of the book. And the future is important to Americans. This year, billions of dollars will be spent trying to understand the future. People will go to palm readers, astrologers. They'll buy books." trying to discern what is going to happen. Certainly, there will be pundits who will come on the news, who will pontificate about what is really happening in this country or that. There are scientists who are making predictions of our future. Some say in 50 years we'll all own waterfront property. Of course, the Bible teaches differently in Genesis. It's never going to happen. Don't worry about it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take care of the creation. You should. But God's Word is clear. We studied that earlier in the Revelation if you were here. But we are studying the future because only God knows the future. And he wrote about it ever before it happened. And when he wrote about the future concerning the first coming of Christ, he, batted, he was batting a thousand. Every single prophecy he made, all 333 of them, literally actually came true. There's no other book on the face of the earth that has fulfilled prophecy because there's no other book on the face of the earth that God himself has inspired. Now, I say we're turning a corner here in the 19th chapter because there's a textual bridge here between the tribulation that we've been studying in chapters 4 through 18 and the second coming of Christ to the earth. Now, he will first come to catch up his church. It's what the New Testament calls a mystery. Musterion is a word that describes something that was once hidden but is now revealed. And there are many truths that were hidden in the Old Testament but are revealed in our day. Paul said the church was a mystery. It was hidden that God was going to use a people beyond the Hebrew people, that he was going to bring the Hebrew and Gentiles together, remove the dividing wall, and make one body of people. It was there in the Old Testament if you looked carefully, but for the most part, it was hidden. The rapture of the church is there by type, but it was hidden. And so Jesus revealed it on the night before he was betrayed. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, for that where I am, you may be also. He is coming back for his church. We will meet him in the air. We call that the rapture. That is a distinctly different event from the second coming where Jesus will come to the earth and all the promises that God made in the Old Testament, especially as they relate to Israel, will literally be fulfilled. Now, the disciples understood much about the second coming of Messiah, his rule on the earth, where he would rule over the nations of the world. The prophets repeatedly spoke of that, and they wanted to understand more about that. And so ever before he spoke on the rapture, on the night of his betrayal, a few days earlier, they sat on the Mount of Olives and they said, Lord, help us to understand your return. And he began to unfold all the different events that would take place. And then he said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then later on in this last sermon that he preached, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit. On his glorious throne. He is going to come to the earth and he is going to sit on his throne. That's the capstone event, the second coming of Christ. So, with that said, let's get introduced to this chapter. It's going to take us several weeks to go through it, but I want us today to study just the first six verses. Follow along there in your Bibles. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you, his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Now, if you've ever been to a high school play, you know that before the curtain rises on the next scene, you can often hear the scuffle of feet, the movement of furniture. You can sometimes peek a little bit underneath the curtain and see people running around, and you know that the stage manager has things in control as he sets the props up for the next scene. Well, right now, we as the church are like an audience. We're peeking underneath the curtain. There are some things that we can see some things that are yet to be revealed. But we are living in a time in human history where we're seeing the feet scurrying around. If we're not living in the time frame described here in the Revelation, we're certainly living on the very threshold of it. Things are happening in our day like never before. Think about this for a moment. Many sitting in this room, since you have been born, You have witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the regathering of that people into the land. Isaiah the prophet says, will a nation be born in one day? Yes, it will. And in one day, May the 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation once again, not by accident. Now, the first recorded demographics we have on the people of Israel since the time of Josephus was in 1880. In 1880, there were about 7.8 million Jews living on the planet, and about 3% or 25,000 of the Jews at that time were in the land. Then, of course, during World War II, Hitler, a satanically inspired man wanting to annihilate the Jewish people thinking, I'm sure, much like Satan does, as we'll see in these chapters that will unfold, that somehow if I can rid the world of the Jewish people, then the claim that the Messiah would make to rule over them and give them a kingdom will never happen. How blind the devil was and how blind Hitler was. But nonetheless, he slaughtered over six million Jewish people. But God often uses the wrath of man to praise him. And the Jewish people fled, and they came even in boatloads to the United States, and our government says, you are not welcomed. And many of them went back to Europe, and they were exterminated in the gas chambers. Many of the Jews, even after the Second World War, they were not welcomed back in their own countries. And the properties that their governments had taken, would they refused to give them back. And so more and more Jews went to Israel. And God promised that this would happen in the last days, the prophet Ezekiel says. The last days, the latter times, refer to that final time frame before the Messiah comes to rule and reign. Ezekiel, the prophet, wrote in the 11th chapter, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from among the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel." If you go to Israel today, there are over 100 nations of Jewish people that are represented. They have come from over 100 countries across the world. The prophet Zechariah in 480 B.C., after the Jewish people had returned from Babylon, wrote of a second scattering and then a final regathering. Listen to these words. God said, I will whistle for them to gather them together. For I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. When I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far back countries and they with their children will live and come back. Isaiah the prophet in the 43rd chapter tells us that before the return of Christ, Messiah to the world, to rule and reign, God said, do not fear for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and I will gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And if you know the 11th chapter, he names the countries, and one country today might represent that's named there three countries. But let me give you the fruit of what Isaiah wrote of in Egypt. In 1948, there were 66,000 Jews. Today, there's less than 200. In Iraq, 150,000. Today, less than 10. In Syria, 15,000 Jews. Today, less than 100. Iran, 95,000 Jews. Today, 9,826 as of last year. Yemen, 48,000. Today, less than 50. Lebanon, 20,000. Today, less than 100. Algeria, 140,000 today less than 100. Morocco, 265,000, today less than 2,000. Tunisia, 105,000, today under 1,000. Libya, 38,000, today zero. Ethiopia, 50,000, today under 8,000. It's amazing. God is doing just what he said. He's gathering the Hebrew people from across the world. Think about it. We've witnessed the rebirth of Israel. We've witnessed the rise of Russia to a major world power because the Bible by name gives the Russian people their land. God names them in the prophet Ezekiel in the war of Gog and Magog that they are going to attack the people of Israel. And it's not by accident that even the current president of Russia does everything it seems in his power to despise and go against the Jewish people. And like this jigsaw puzzle, the pieces are coming together. And right now, while the curtain is closed and we cannot see all the details, we can catch glimpses here and there. And we know that the director of heaven is in absolute control and that he is indeed unfolding his plan. And let me say to you today, if you're listening here, On one of our campuses or by line or by radio, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you would be wise to get that issue settled before this day is over. There is no such thing as neutrality with the Lord Jesus. He said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not for Jesus and you love him such that you are gathering for his kingdom... You can't say, well, I'm just neutral. You're either for him or you are against him. That's why the Bible warns today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Because apart from the fact that the Lord Jesus could return even before this day is over, you say he won't come today. He'll come at a time when you least expect. But whether he comes today or next week or next year or a hundred years from now, If there's an openness in your heart today, so much so that you came to this gathering or you're listening to this broadcast, that is not by accident. That's the work of the Holy Spirit because no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. But not all that God draws respond. Many will resist. And Proverbs warns, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly have it broken beyond remedy. Putting off a decision for Christ is very foolish because eventually your time will run out and time will make a decision for you. And so I want to say to you, you don't have to join this church to become a Christian. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be confirmed. You don't need to give any money. But you do need to be willing to humble yourself in repentance and faith and to come to Jesus as Lord. Now, let me set the context for the 19th chapter. Again, the tribulation period is over, and we're in this portion of this song in heaven, and it's kind of a textual bridge between what we've been studying in chapters 6 through 18 as the wrath of God has been unfolding to Christ's literal return to the earth. Now, let me repeat myself, because the Bible teaches repetition is the great teacher, and I know there are many new people. I know the rest of you have it all down pat, so I'm not worried about you. But, but we can see various scenes unfolding here in this chapter. Right now, we're in scene one. We call it the church age. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. It's a new covenant entity. It began on the day of Pentecost. God is gathering a people called the church we saw in chapter 4, scene 2, where a door is opened in heaven and the church is caught up. And we saw in the 4th and 5th chapter, the church there in heaven worshiping the living God. And then scene 3 began in chapter 5 and in chapter 6, as the deed to the earth was given to the Messiah, to the Lamb on the throne, where He, was going to, where he is going to reclaim what God had promised What Adam had lost, the second Adam will indeed reclaim. And so beginning in chapter 6 all the way through the 18th chapter, we have been studying these judgments that have happened. And then after these judgments unfold on the earth, we will come to scene 4, which we will begin to study next week. We call it the second coming. Here's a chart just to refresh your mind, the arrow here on the far left. Indicates the rapture. That's the next great event on Christ's prophetic schedule. Nothing has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. The second coming is a prophetically driven event. Many things have always needed to happen. Israel had to be back in the land. There had to be an antichrist who could come and mock the Jewish people and so on and so forth. Nothing has ever needed to happen for the rapture. But by by virtue of the fact that God is fulfilling prophecy in our day for the second coming reminds you that the rapture is that much closer. When you go into Walmart in October around Halloween and you see the Christmas decorations go up, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. When you see God setting the stage for the second coming of His Son from heaven, you know the rapture is that much closer. So the church will be taken out. And we don't know how much time, but from what the opening verses of the Revelation taught, it's like a taxis, we get our word tachometer, things are going to happen very fast, maybe hours, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks. But there will come on the scene a one world leader known as the Antichrist. He will come offering a fake peace. And during the first three and a half years, he will protect the Jewish people. They will be able to worship according to the dictates of their hearts. There will be a rebuilt temple there on top of the Temple Mount there in the city of Jerusalem. But in the middle of that great tribulation, that seven-year period, he is going to go into that temple. He is going to commit what Jesus called, quoting the prophet Daniel, the abomination of desolation. He will claim to be God Almighty. And the Jews will recognize through the idolatrous act that he's going to invite the peoples of the world to follow, that he cannot possibly be the Messiah. Their eyes will be wide open because God's will never contradicts his words, and God hates idolatry. And and the Antichrist will begin to persecute the Jews, and the tribulation becomes the great tribulation. And it will finish with the battle of Armageddon that we're going to study here in the following weeks with Christ's second coming to the earth. It will be so bad that Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If you think of all the atrocities that has ever happened in the history of man, and you put them all together, they don't even compare to what is going to happen here in the future. Now, in chapters 6 through 18, we have studied the birth pangs, Right now, it is evident from what we're seeing in the world that the woman is pregnant, but she hasn't gone into labor yet. The birth pangs don't begin until the church is removed. And Jesus said in those final seven years, just like a woman in labor whose birth pangs get increasingly intense and more frequent, so will these events. And so we saw in the sealed judgments that they would only affect one-fourth of the earth, Then we studied the trumpet judgments. We saw that they affected one third of the earth. And then we studied the bold judgments that were introduced to us in chapter 15 and unfolded in the 16th chapter. And they affect the entire church or the entire world. So the sealed judgments are like a warning. God's trying to get the man's attention. Through the trumpet judgment, he intensifies his wrath, but he completes it through those bold judgments. The world today, more and more, they are giving no credit to Father God. They worship Mother Nature. We are seen in America, Romans 1, and not just in America, it's happening in a multiplicity of countries across the planet. No praise, no thanks. Forty years ago, 80% of America would be in some kind of house of worship on any given weekend. Today, about 20% of Americans. And some are listening to me, and you're at home sitting on that fat, lazy chair in your bed because not that you're sick, it was just more convenient. You didn't feel like getting up to worship the living God. Some people, man, we're starting our vacation Sunday morning, huh? and we're, we're out of here. Best plane flight, 6 a.m. Sunday morning. We're not going to church. And We just blow off the living God whom we are called to worship. And so in Romans 1, they refuse to give God thanks or praise, and God gives them over to sensuality. We said in America in the 60s and 70s, God didn't make the world. Evolution did. Pat Robinson was like a heretic 10 days ago when he said that God uses the process of evolution to create. He did not. And this world is not billions and billions of years old, as he falsely said. And Ken Ham was right when he said he needs to repent. We refuse to give God praise or thanks. He gave us over to sensuality. It was a judgment. Did we respond to that judgment? No. So God has given us over to homosexuality. Are we responding to that judgment? No, we're, we're glorying in it. And so God is giving us over to a depraved and upside-down mind. And as you read the chapter 1 of the book of Romans, especially the third section, it's frightening because with every week that goes by, America becomes more and more like that. And so we have these mainline denominations, and now evangelicals living on the edge— talking about gay Christians, which is an oxymoron, and we're calling what God says evil rights. But you see, when a heterosexual society is immoral, then they are quick to endorse other forms of immorality. So let's not just dump on the homosexuals. Many heterosexuals are living wicked, unjust lives with multiple partners And so, God will bring judgment on the rivers, on the seas, on the grass, on the trees, and Mother Nature that we have virtually deified. God will judge. Now, what's the purpose of all of this? God has two principal purposes. Number one, to convert the Jewish people. We call this seven-year period the Great Tribulation. The Old Testament calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And we've seen all the way through Revelation that this is a very, very Jewish book. And the Bible teaches not only the regathering of Israel, that's the first step. We're seeing that. But then after the church is removed, we're going to see the conversion. Jewish people are going to be converted. The prophet Isaiah, Daniel, Amos, Zechariah, they all affirm that truth. Now, understand the fact that one of the ongoing proofs that you cannot spiritualize the prophecies that is found in the book of Revelation... And there are some Bible teachers whom I love and they love Christ, but they say that the church is the New Israel, they teach replacement theology and all that nonsense. You cannot spiritualize the book. and one of the ways that we know you cannot is just by fact that the Jewish people exist. From the time Father Abraham in Genesis 15, Genesis 12, reaffirmed in Genesis 15, said again in Genesis 17, that God would set. A covenant with the Jewish people that was unconditional in nature, that could not be broken. From the time that God said that, the Jewish people have continued. Now, last winter, we saw the Winter Olympics. You know, all these countries came in with their flags. You know what? There was no Hittite flag. Did you notice that? There were no Gergeshites or Jebusites or Hivites or Amorites or Canaanites or Perizzites or Mosquito Bites or anybody else you can think of. Neither did the Philistines practice the long jump, but the Jewish people are still here. Think about it. All those other nations have been assimilated into other cultures, but the only country in the world that bears its same name, that speaks the same language, that upholds the same faith, that inhabits the same land as it did 3,000 years ago, is Israel. In 1897, Theodore Herzl held the Zionist Conference, encouraging the Jewish people to go back to the land. How is it that for nearly 2,000 years, these people who, Gentile nation after another, and there's a growing anti-Semitic movement in this country that is disgusting? And as I've been speaking to some of our college students coming back from Clemson in USC, they are telling me of the anti-Semitism even here in the great state of South Carolina. How is it that the dream has been kept alive? How is it that these Jewish people continue to exist? Such a small nation, no bigger than Delaware, only about 12 and a half million Jews on the planet, yet they are front and center in the daily news only by the hand of God Almighty. And God has kept the dream alive through the practices that He gave the Jewish people to do. There's festivals and holidays that they celebrate year after year, generation after generation. Every year on the ninth day of Av that commemorates the destruction of the first temple and the destruction of the second temple that also happened on the exact same date, the Jewish people fast around the world. Every year when they have their Passover Seder, even some of the Jews that are not that orthodox, they sing a song next year in Jerusalem. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of Jewish practices and traditions that God has used to cement them together as a people. And during this seven-year period... Right now, the church, largely Gentile, is preaching the gospel to the world. During that time, 144,000 Jews from 12 different tribes will preach the gospel across the planet. It's not by accident because God has this in absolute control. Now, during this time, millions of Jews are going to meet the living God, and not just Jews, Gentiles are going to meet them. And of course, when the Jewish people reject the Antichrist as some kind of a savior, he is going to wage war against them. We studied this in the 12th chapter, if you are here for that section of the Revelation. Let me read to you Revelation 12 and verse 6. Then the woman who's identified as Israel, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that, there would, that, that she would be nourished 1,260 days. That's the second half of the tribulation. Right in the middle, Antichrist defiles the temple. Every Jew is going to have their eyes wide open. They're going to reject him, and they're going to do what Jesus said. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. And they're going to flee to places like Petra, as pictured here. And they will hide, but even there in the wilderness, Satan will seek to drown them. I'm not sure how he will do it, restructuring rivers and water into that area, but the Bible says, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But God will miraculously deliver them. As in Exodus 15, Numbers 16, God will open up the earth. And so Revelation 12 says, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river, which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan's attempt to make the prophecies... For Israel to be fulfilled will become null and void. God will intervene, and ultimately, as we will study here in the subsequent weeks at the Battle of Armageddon, God will settle it forever. So there are these people, even today, even American politicians that have a veiled form of anti-Semitism... There are nations and youth, especially in various countries of the world, who want to see the Jewish people exterminated. It ain't going to happen because we have a sovereign God who rules above and he will keep all of his promises. Now, in the 17th and the 18th chapter, God pushed the pause button. And we saw in Revelation 17 all these religions of the world coming together. Religion can be a glue that can unite nations. And initially, there will be a coexist of sorts. All of these different religions. We're seeing the seeds sown for that, even through this pope pictured here. We're now on over 20 different occasions. He has gathered religious leaders together, and on three specific occasions, he affirmed that everyone is a child of God, and he denied the uniqueness of Jesus as the only way to heaven. If that pope was wise, he would fall on his face and bow before Jesus and call him Lord and take back every evil, wicked word he has said. And then in the 18th chapter... After the abomination of desolation takes place, that multiplicity of religions will cease to exist, and there'll be a singularity of religions in one economy, and you will not be able to buy or sell unless you follow the Antichrist and take his mark. 666. And so in the 17th chapter, religious Babylon is destroyed by 10 human kings with the Antichrist. And in the 18th chapter, the Antichrist kingdom is destroyed by God Himself. That brings us to this textual bridge. The tribulation is coming to an end, and God is setting the stage, and everyone in heaven knows it. And they are there singing and praising the living God. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see this song that is sung in heaven. The first stanza is a hallelujah of God's salvation, a hallelujah of his salvation. The verse opens, after these things, we've seen that phrase, ta" many times, and every time you see, after these things in the revelation, God is about to introduce a new subject. I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So the tribulation is coming to an end, and now the spotlight is on heaven and Christ's return to the earth. And John says he heard something like a loud voice. It's two Greek words, megale phone. We reverse it, and we get our English word megaphone. There's this great multitude in heaven who are singing praise to God. The worldly music, if you were here last time in chapter 18 and verse 22, is silenced. Now heaven is singing praises. And in these four verses of this hymn, it looks back to the judgment on Babylon that we've been studying through those six messages. This great multitude or this loud voice, where did we find this great multitude initially? Hold your finger here, go back to Revelation 7, just back a little bit, Revelation chapter 7, and go, if you will, to verse 9, Revelation 7, 9. We were first introduced to this great multitude in heaven that has been growing during this seven-year period, when 144,000 Jewish people are preaching the gospel to the world, and John sees the fruit of their ministry. He said, after these things I looked, and behold, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude, which no one could count. What a wonderful image of the grace of God. Because again, these Jewish men are preaching the gospel and people are responding. That's one of the functions of the tribulation period. God, the Bible says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should you. I hope your heart is filled with compassion this morning. When you see the mess that so many lives are in across our nation. I hope you realize, but by God's grace and mercy, there go I. I hope you have a compassion... Because God does. It's a trustworthy statement that deserves your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you know why Community Bible Church exists? Do you know why we are supposed to be here as a Bible-believing local church? Number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, to edify the saints. And number three, to evangelize the lost. That's why we are supposed to be here. We are here not to exalt any man or any group of men. We are here to exalt the living Savior. We are here to edify the church that they might grow and that we might evangelize the lost. Why? Because the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this is God's heartbeat, and you see it here in this verse. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count. He doesn't even dare to assign a number to this magnitude of people who have come out of the tribulation as saved. Now, as we've studied and we've let Scripture interpret Scripture, people who are in churches like this, who have heard the gospel in clarity and power before the rapture, will not be saved after the rapture. Second Thessalonians 2 is crystal clear on that. This multitude that is saved are people who have never heard the gospel before. But think about what God is doing on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were one to the Lord. A few days later, 5,000 men, excluding women and children, probably 20,000 were added to the Lord. And then Luke records that God was adding to their number every day. All of that magnificent conversion work of the Spirit of God pales in comparison to the multiplied millions He is going to save during this period of time. A great multitude which no one can count. And then he highlights this group in terms of their origin. Because God is not just saving Jews, he's saving Gentiles. I looked, behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. So the Bible is clear. It's not like God is just like enjoying himself up in heaven and watching people suffer. Some of you have told me your testimony and it's in the midst of suffering. It's been in the midst of the bottom falling out that God got your attention and you wouldn't trade what you went through because God used it to bring you to faith. This is like the close of time and God is going to bring the Jewish people to faith. Alas, for that great day, none is like it. And it's the time of Jacob's trouble, but he, Jacob, Israel will be saved out of it. Listen to what the prophet Zechariah says in the 12th chapter. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. That's Yeshua. That's Jesus, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for their firstborn. The Jews are going to be saved and people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and what Jesus said will be fulfilled. This gospel, Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This verse, contextually, is in reference to this seven-year period where the gospel through the 144,000, through their two witnesses, through an eternal angel, will win people from every tribe and tongue and nation across the planet. That doesn't mean that we sit on our hands today and say, well, it's going to happen. We don't need to do it. No, in every generation, we are to be faithful and obedient. But what we have not pulled off in 2,000 years, God is going to pull off in these final seven years. I looked a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, not just Jews, all tribes and peoples and tongues, every unreached people group in the world will be one during this time. But the Bible is also clear that two-thirds of the world's population will perish in these judgments. It's sobering. Now go back to our text here in Revelation 19 and verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Now, the word hallelujah occurs four times in the New Testament, in every instance in Revelation, and in every instance here in the 19th chapter. It's from a Hebrew word. It's the transliteration. When you transliterate a word, you hear that word used by pastors sometimes. It's when you take a vocalized sound of a language, and then you translate it to the receptor language. So like baptizo comes into English as baptized. Well, hallelujah is from two Hebrew words, halal. So we speak of the halal psalms, the praise psalms of God. And yah, the tetragrammaton, the most sacred name for God, Yahweh, meaning Lord. So when we say hallelujah, we're literally saying... Praise the Lord. And some of your English Bibles don't even render it hallelujah. They interpret it for you. They give you the meaning of the word, and they write praise the Lord. But that's what it means. Every once in a while, someone will call on the Bible line with a very obscure question. And some years back, someone called, and they said, I need to ask you a question, Pastor Carl. Is it hallelujah, like it says in my Bible, or is it hallelujah, like it says in the King James? which is it? I said, well, that's a good question. So, let me see if I can answer it. Hallelujah. In Greek, linguists will speak of different accent marks. There's what we call a rough breathing mark. If you had a Greek New Testament open before you, and even if you couldn't read Greek, and you opened this chapter of Scripture and you saw the word hallelujah, which you would recognize, you would see before the alpha is what looks like a backward comma. And it's a rough breathing mark. It makes a h sound. And when you put it with the alpha, it's hallelujah. So in the Greek New Testament, it is hallelujah. Well, Why is it hallelujah in the King James and in the Catholic Bible? Because the Catholic Bible used the Latin translation that Jerome produced in the 4th century. And of course, in uh, Latin, uh, they have different sounds, some of which that we don't have in English. Like, for instance, there's no J in Hebrew or Greek or Latin. So there, the King James drops the J. Now, you would think there would be a, a, a Y, like hallelujah, Y-A-H, because it's from the word way for God. But we have hallelujah. But we don't really say hallelujah, do we? We say hallelujah, right? Okay. But uh, nonetheless, um, also in Latin, they drop the H. Um, there's no J, and so it becomes Alleluia. There's no H in Latin. So it's Alleluia. So in the British Isles, where the King James came from... Their origins was Roman Catholic, and so they largely used the Latin Bible, among other things, in the translation of the King James, and so they said, Alleluia. So I just want to answer your question. I don't know that anyone's asking it, but, you know, still, there's a difference between Alleluia and "Hallelujah." What's the difference? It means the same thing. You can say either one that you want, but in the Greek New Testament, it is Hallelujah, all right? Now, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Say that, Hallelujah. You know, I go to India and they love to shout, Hallelujah, right? Sham, can you shout it back there? Hallelujah. Amen. See, and they, literally, you go to India and there's thousands of people. They say, Hallelujah. They love to say that word. I love them for that. That's beautiful. So here we are, they're in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now the word hallelujah appears 25 times in the Old Testament, in every instance in the Psalms, and again, just four times in the New Testament, in every instance in this chapter. And I want you to see what they're praising God for. They cry out, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Listen, when we get to heaven, we're going to praise God for all that He has done. And so in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, we saw the church in heaven worshiping and giving God praise for the cross, for the blood, and for the empty tomb. And if that's all we had to praise God for, we'd have enough to shout. But here, they're praising God for another dimension of His character and what He has done. Look at it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and He's avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. So in this first stanza, They're praising God because he's judged the great harlot. Now, you remember who the great harlot is, right? Babylon, economic Babylon, religious Babylon, two chapters. God has dealt with it, and he destroys them both in the end. So they're praising God because, one, he has judged the great harlot. Why has he judged them? Because they corrupted the earth with her immorality. They took God's moral standard, and they reversed it just like the Speaker of the House last week was speaking against pastors like Carl Brogy, because we're saying homosexuality is sin. And so they passed a bill. Thank God there's not enough people in the Senate to pass it. But in the House, they passed a bill called the Equality Act. God help us if that's ever passed in the Senate because then homosexual people will have the full status of a minority person. If I were a minority person, an African American or something, I would come out of my seat that they would take some moral perversion and put that on the same level of what men like Martin Luther King fought for in terms of equal rights. It is a gross perversion. But I'll tell you, if it is past, look out. You're going to see persecution come on the church of the living God like we've never seen before in America. They're praising God because He has judged this people who've corrupted God's morality, and they're praising God because He has now avenged the blood of His bondservants. We'll see it in the 20th chapter. Millions of tribulation saints have been beheaded by this institution called Babylon because they refused to follow and give allegiance to the Antichrist. Now, we don't often think about praising God for putting down evil. But you just read your Bible and you see it's a common theme. Psalm 104, verse 35, Let sinners be consumed from the earth let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This kind of praise of God's righteous judgment on sinners is found many times in Scripture. The Psalms often praise God for putting down evil, because when they praise God for putting down evil, they're praising Him that He is a holy God, that He is a just God. Salvation and glory and power, it's actually articular. It's The salvation, the glory, doxa, we get our word doxology from it. God's moral glory is being seen. God's deliverance. Here the word salvation is not as the way we often use it, but sometimes it's used in the Bible of God delivering someone from danger. God has delivered his people from the persecution of Babylon. His glory, his moral glory is being seen in his power, the power Dunamis, we got our word dynamite from it. And again it's very clear that they're praising God as he executes these judgment because the very first word in verse two is because. We're praising you God because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. They're praising God, not simply for the deliverance that he has given them, but because of his justice that has been expressed. Now, put out in the margin there, would you, Psalm 19.9. Psalm 19.9. If you have the New American Standard, you will notice that there's a change in typeset, right? And that tells you right off, as it is in 99.9% of the cases, that this is an Old Testament quote. And he's quoting Psalm 19. Most of us know how this Psalm opens. King David begins with general revelation for the choir director, a Psalm of David. That's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible and in many languages of the world. And then verse 2 is what we have as our verse 1. But that little inscription on the front of the psalm is inspired by the Spirit of God. The only thing that's not inspired is the chapter title. And so the NAS may have one chapter title, and the NIV and the ESV a different one. And the verse opens, The heavens they're telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And then he moves from that general revelation, that information that God has revealed to all men everywhere, wherever they live on the planet, which is why Paul says no one can say they're atheistic because God's fingerprints are all over his creation. But then he goes to specific revelation, that revelation that God has given through his written word. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then the verse that John quotes is the next verse in that psalm. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. God's judgments are true. They are righteous, and that's what he's quoting here, because his judgments are true and righteous. And so these saints in heaven, the church has been raptured, and they have been greeted by multiplied millions who have been slaughtered by the Antichrist in a Christ-hating world, and God is now vindicating his people. And so God has judged the great harlot, The capital of the Antichrist, Babylon, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he's avenged the blood of his bondservants. You will notice also, again, a second set of caps. Right out of the margin, Deuteronomy 32, 43. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Now Moses, on three occasions, writes a song or a prayer of sorts. One is in Exodus Exodus chapter 15, one's in Psalm 90, and one's in Deuteronomy 32. And by the way, just as a helpful guide in your personal Bible study, when you see an Old Testament quotation, hopefully you have a Bible with marginal notes, you'll go out into the margin, see where it's from, and then you'll go back and maybe read that whole chapter of Scripture. What does that do for you? It will make it pop for you. You go back and you say, Read that whole chapter, where maybe just a portion of it is being quoted, and you understand the context and what's going on, and why the Spirit of God, through the pen of the Apostle John, would even use this verse. And so Moses writes these three uh, hymns of sorts. And let me read to you some, I mean Deuteronomy thirty two, forty-three. Moses writes, Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Moses is looking down the corridors of time to the final error before the Messiah comes to rule and reign on the earth. And so John takes Psalm 19, Psalm 32, he blades them together. His judgments are true and righteous. He has judged the great harlot who's corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bond servant on her. They're praising God for his truth, for his justice, for his fairness, for his righteousness. You say that seems kind of harsh, pastor. That they're praising God that he's judging The peoples of the world, listen, they're not rejoicing so much in the punishment of the wicked as they are in the expression of God's justice and holiness. And understand, there is a time now in human history where no one else is going to get saved. We've reached that time. No one else is going to believe. The only people who are left on the earth that are unregenerate, will never, ever, ever believe. And the only thing that is left for them is God's just judgment. There's a part of you that does that every day. You see some hateful murderer who's wiped out children. You see some pervert who's abused little kids. And there's a part of you that says, I want to see justice satisfied. Why do you think that way? Because God wrote his law into your heart and his law is an expression of his character, Romans 2.15. Well, we are at a point in human history where all these lost people, all they are going to do is reject God's Messiah and God's people in heaven are praising him because now his justice is going to fall. That's him number one, stanza number one. Stanza number two, the hallelujah of God's sentence. We read now in verse 3, and a second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, this is not simply the second verse, the same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. No, there's a heightened reason for their praise. There's a finality now to God's judgment. Her smoke, her who, her Babylon who has led the way in persecuting the saints of God and propagating wickedness and immorality, the great harlot has been judged. And notice again, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet. Put out on the margin, Isaiah 34.10, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, the fact that the smoke of Babylon literally rose up as God burned the place into oblivion like he did Sodom and Gomorrah, It's obviously going to expire. In fact, the whole earth is going to expire. When we come to the 21st chapter, God's going to burn the whole planet with fire, create a new heaven and a new earth, which, by the way, is a real problem for the old earth people who say we've been here for billions of years. Oh, it took God billions of years to pull it off. No, Moses said in Exodus 20, when he gives divine commentary on Genesis 1 through 3, it took six days. And if it took billions of years, then why in an instance of time, God's not going to take six days. He's just going to speak a whole new universe in a moment. Her smoke rises up. You go back and you read Isaiah and you discover that Isaiah is speaking at that time when the Messiah comes back and he will judge the world with equity and in righteousness. And God will indeed make a new heaven and a new earth. But the language itself brings you into the Gospels because that's how Jesus described Gehenna. A place of flame and smoke where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And it is forever and ever. And here are these people, they're praising God because God is gonna judge this Jew-hating, Christian-murdering, man-glorifying, ego-centered man glorifying ego centered Mother Nature worshiping world, and he's going to bring judgment. And it will be unrelenting. It will be forever and ever and ever. Listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32, 43. Again, rejoice, O nations with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on her adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Listen to what King David said in Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad and let the nations rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Why? Why should all of nature sing praise to God? Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. As I said earlier, maybe people today think it's insensitive or rude or hateful to praise God for his judgment. But you can't divide God up into some God that you've created in your own image. And we will praise God just as much for his wrath that expresses his holiness and his justice as we will for his love and his mercy and his grace. That brings us to stanza three. We're almost done. The hallelujah of God's sovereignty. Stanza one is the hallelujah of his salvation. Stanza two, the hallelujah of his sentence. Now, the hallelujah of God's sovereignty. Verse four, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, amen, hallelujah. Remember the 24 elders? We were first introduced to them in chapter 4. They have appeared six times in the Revelation. In chapter 4, when the door is opened and the church is brought into heaven, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, again, there are Christians in America who teach replacement theology that God's done with the Jew The church has replaced Israel, and they want to make these 24 elders Israel. Listen, this is before the tribulation. Israel, largely today, is an unbelief. The tribulation hasn't even started yet in Revelation 4. These are church saints. Some will say, well, that's got to be true, so maybe these are angels. These aren't angels. Angels don't sit on thrones. They're ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation. They serve us. Co-regency with Christ is promised to his people, the church, and later the Jewish people. And to call these 24 elders angels is really an oxymoron because typically in the Bible, presbyteroi, we got a word presbyterian from it, is used of older gentlemen. Older men and angels, of course, don't age. Not to mention, while angels can appear in white throughout the revelation, those appearing in white are those who've been robed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And the only ones who will wear crowns in heaven will not be angels. It will be God's saint as saints, as we studied in Revelation chapter two with the church at Smyrna. Twenty-four elders. Why does he have twenty-four? it's a representative number that appears 6 times here in the revelation and it's a representative number in scripture for a large group we studied this when we were back in chapter 4 i know it was a long time ago but if you remember 1st chronicles 24 there's 24 divisions in the old testament priesthood and they represent thousands of priests in First Chronicles 25, we saw there was 25 divisions of singers in the temple of these choirs, and they represent thousands of choir members. And these 24 elders, they can't represent angels because angels serve. They don't reign. They don't sit on thrones. It's not Israel because they're going to come to faith. This is the church in heaven. They have been raptured before the wrath of the Lamb begins. And when we come to the 20th chapter, for those Christians who teach, we'll be here for the tribulation, I will show you how that is an absolute impossible view to take. God's word will be so clear to you. Hallelujah. Praise God. They're excited. I heard about a lady. She was in a church. You know, God's frozen, chosen. I mean, it was a dead church. And she got saved late in life. She got saved through a Billy Graham crusade, and she started going to the church, and every once in a while, the pastor would actually read a Bible verse, and she'd say, hallelujah. And people would kind of look at her, no one had ever done that in the church before, and he preached a little bit, hallelujah. And finally, a couple of the ushers said, ma'am, you, you, you got to be a little quieter here. I know you've been a member here for 50 years, but you've never done this before. What's happened to you? I got religion. I got saved. Well, finally, she kept shouting, and four ushers started to carry her out. And she kept saying, hallelujah. He said, why are you saying hallelujah now? We're taking you out of this place. She said, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he came in on one donkey. I'm leaving by four donkeys. (laughs) Listen, if you could fully grasp All that God is, all that he has done, and all that is ours is his children and what he is going to do, you would shout hallelujah until you are hoarse. And you will in heaven and you won't get hoarse because you'll be in a resurrection body. Listen, every time we meet these 24 elders, they are praising the living God and they're praising him again with the four living creatures. The old King James says the four beasts. The new King James properly says the four living creatures, because this is not some heinous, hideous creature, even like the Antichrist. Four living Zoa. These are four living creatures, and we've studied them, and we looked at the prophet Ezekiel, that these are the cherubim of God that lead uh, in the worship of God's people. Cherubs are not little angels with wings going around throwing darts to make people fall in love. No such thing. It's good on a Hallmark card, but it's bad theology. These four living creatures, just like angels, can change their appearance and become like humans so that you can entertain them without knowing it. These four living creatures can change their appearance, and they are so thrilled and so excited and so glad... That they did not listen to Satan, and their career has been one of praising the living God. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, and they say, amen, hallelujah. The throne, we've seen that all the way through the Revelation. And it's used to emphasize God's dignity, God's sovereign rule, that he is above all, that he, in his magnificence and all of his glory and power, will someday literally bring that power to earth. And what saints have prayed for 2,000 years, Lord, your will be done literally on earth as it is in heaven, will actually come true Korah wrote in Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. King David said in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And one day, as Philippians 2 indicates, all of creation will acknowledge that. And here they are, they fall down on their faces and they say, amen, hallelujah. Now, there's only one place in Scripture where those two words are dovetailed like that other than this verse, and it's Psalm 106, 48. There we read, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting, even to everlasting, and let all the people say, amen. And it's the word, hallelujah, translated here, praise the Lord. The L-E-B Bible says, amen, praise Yah. Again, it's the word for hallelujah, Now, amen, that's a word you need to know. We use it a lot in Christendom today, and the word generally means to signify agreement with something or something you give approval with, but it's not always used that way. It's usually used that way when it's found, say, at the end of a verse or the end of a prayer, but very often, though, it doesn't come out in our English Bibles, but some of you are using languages this morning from your native tongue, and the first Two words sometimes that a verse when Jesus said, like, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. Actually, the Bible says, amen, amen, I say to you. And there the word amen comes out in the front of a verse. And when you see the word truly, truly, or verily, verily in the old King James, or literally amen, amen... God is affirming, not only is the speaker saying what is true, the speaker is saying it with absolute authority. And by the way, every time Jesus says, amen, amen, truly, truly, you ought to listen because He is the omniscient God. And so at the beginning of the verse, it's an affirmation of truth by someone who can speak it as true, for Jesus is the truth. And at the end of a verse or a prayer, and sometimes we want to double our agreement, we say amen and amen. Here are these people in heaven, falling on their face, saying amen, hallelujah. Those are two good words. I had a woman here 25 years ago. We had just moved into our first building, and she seemed like every four words, she said amen. And I think if I said the devil is a great person, she would have said amen. It was one of those kind of thoughtless things, just amen, 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 amen. And it wasn't... Finally, I said to one of the ushers, you know, you need to tone this down just a little bit because it's distracting. It's distracting. But sometimes your heart is just so overfilled, you need to say amen, and that's okay. But we don't use the word flippantly any more than we use the word hallelujah flippantly, because we don't take God's name in vain. We just don't say praise the Lord and not really think of it carefully. But understand, here in heaven they're saying amen, hallelujah. Why don't we try that? I'll say amen. You say hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. That's the language of heaven. And we're going to be there someday. Finally, there's the hallelujah of God's supremacy. In case you're a little reluctant to offer praise, let me remind you here in verse 5, an angel commands it. And a voice came from the throne room. And this voice is not God the Father or God the Son speaking, because this voice says, give praise to our God. And all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. He's addressing believers who are in heaven, God's slaves, God's bondservants, those who fear him, because that's what true believers do. Then I heard, verse 6, something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. This is the fourth hallelujah, and John tells us it sounds like a great multitude. I was walking with one of my sons up to the stadium in Columbia years ago, and all of a sudden, this explosive noise came out of the stadium. Something happened. I don't know what it was, but something happened that was big. Well, you think of 80,000 fans shouting and screaming. There's this great multitude in heaven that is compared also to many waters. I remember as a young boy, my dad taking me on that little boat by the falls of Niagara and those mighty waters just thundering down over the top of those falls like mighty peals of thunder and they are saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This speaks of God's supremacy, that he is victorious, that he is ruling, that he is omnipotent. He is reigning today in heaven, but someday his reign is going to come to the earth. And even at the birth of the Messiah, when he leaves heaven and he's incarnated in human flesh, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, this little baby you're going to have, he'll be great. And he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And the beginning of that fulfillment is about to happen. We'll study it next week. And all the recipients of heaven are so excited. It's explosive. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Are you ready for this date? Do you know the living God? Have you met him in a personal way? You must be born again verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. There's no neutrality in Christ's kingdom. He who is not with me scatters. He who does not gather. He's against me. Today, if you hear his voice, the Bible warns, don't harden your heart. You can keep saying no to God and you will come to a point where you will say a final no and you will never, ever, ever again be able to say yes. And that's why there's a sense of urgency. And that's why there is to be a sense of obedience on the part of the people of God to share the message. Father, thank you for this portion of Scripture as we are about to study the return of your son from heaven to the earth. Thank you that every single prophecy concerning his first coming, you literally actually fulfilled. And thank you that every prophecy for his second coming, you will fulfill and you are even fulfilling in our day with Israel. We bless you for the integrity of your word. With the psalmist, we say it is righteous and is true. So help us to heed it, help us to feed upon it, help us to meditate on your holy word like newborn babes that we might grow in respect to our salvation as we long for the pure milk of the word. Help us in this new week to care for the souls around us, some who are caught up in all kinds of sin and turmoil but many not because they are in outright rebellion, but because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Help us to be involved in the rescuing of souls this week, to care about the people that we will see and meet. And help, Father, someone today who has never called upon Jesus' name in faith. Thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you that your word says he receives sinful men but help someone to know that they can never do enough to earn heaven. Your word says, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can brag. Thank you, Lord Jesus, with your own precious blood, you purchased the gift of eternal life for us. Help someone today in repentance and faith to come to Jesus. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me, and change me. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.